That's for later. We have a new vision we're talking about, helping people find and follow Jesus. It's the way we state kind of everything around here. We used to say making disciple makers. Same kind of vision, just stated differently, helping people find and follow Jesus. We want to state who we are and what we do in a way that, that any person off the street could basically understand. So in our new Helping People Find and Follow Jesus strategy, we're highlighting uh, what we call the nine habits. And uh, hasn't really made it to our literature yet or our website yet, but it will continue to roll those things out. Uh, you'll begin to see it more and more over time. And, and, and we're starting a series today for two weeks that focuses on two of those nine habits. And we'll tell you more about the habits. Don't worry about memorizing them. In six months, you'll be tired of hearing about them. Um, but these two of the nine that we're going to focus on in these two weeks are commit to the church as a member and pursue generosity. Commit to the church as a member and pursue generosity. And we're taking this just this brief two weeks for a series we're calling Honest Work. And Honest Work takes its cue from the passage we just read in Ephesians 4:28. If you have that handy, turn there. Um, if you don't, we'll have it on screen for you there. Uh, just read through this one little verse, and, and I'll tell you where we get this series theme and title. In Ephesians 4:28 here, this is part of a larger section, by the way, where Paul is uh, sort of describing what new life in Christ looks like. And in this smaller section here, he's talking about stopping doing some things, like not do some things that are from the old life. So he has just, in this smaller section here, said, stop lying and begin to speak the truth. He's also said, stop continually being consumed by anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then he says this in verse 28. This is the third of those sort of stop things. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Stop doing that, but rather instead let him labor. Here's the phrase, doing honest work with his own hands. And there's a purpose for this. There's a, a so that, verse 28, so that this former thief may now have something to share with anyone in need. Paul is saying here that some of you were thieves, and, and in this new life, it is inconsistent with having new life in Jesus to keep stealing from others. Now, he's not just saying, and this is important, he's not just saying, don't be a thief, although he obviously means that. He's saying more than that. He's saying don't act like a thief. So instead of stealing, instead of stealing like a thief, do honest work, he says, with your own hands. That's a favorite Paul phrase. With your own hands so that you will have something to share. Let me just say this straight up, friends. <laughs> we need more honest workers in the body of Christ. We need more honest work going on in the body of Christ. Here's what I mean by that. We at FCC, this may come as a bit of a shock to hear it this way, but I think it's true. I think it's Bible. We at FCC continue to struggle with a major theft problem that has been going on a long while and has meant the loss of untold amounts of money and human resources and organizational effectiveness. And it's getting worse in our church, and it's getting worse in churches all across America. And here's how this is happening. I want you to think of a hitchhiker. Some of the younger folks may not even know what a hitchhiker is, perhaps. We'll show you a picture of a, a hitchhiker here. There's some hitch, hitchhikers from the 70s. 
There was a time, especially during the 70s, seriously, where hitchhikers all over this country would go all over the place uh, for free. They'd stick out their thumb and get a free ride. Some of y'all probably did some hitchhiking in your days. People hitchhike all over this country, uh, you know, looking for themselves or (laughs) pursuing peace somewhere else. (laughs) Anyway, think about the hitchhiker with me for a second here. A hitchhiker wants a free ride. A hitchhiker assumes no responsibility for the money needed to buy the car, the gas to run it, or the cost of maintenance. A hitchhiker expects a comfortable ride (laughs) and adequate safety. The hitchhiker assumes that the driver has insurance in case of an accident. And hitchhikers think very little of asking the driver to go out of their way to go to a certain place for them. Though it may involve extra miles or expense or inconvenience or time. Friends, the church in America is absolutely filled with spiritual hitchhikers who have decided to at least attend a church. And now that they do that, they want also all the benefits and the privileges of that church's ministry without taking responsibility for it. We live in a world of spiritual consumers, spiritual hitchhikers, who have an attitude of take, 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 and not give. They don't want to have to deal with the responsibility. They just want a free ride. Let the thief no longer steal, but do honest work to give. In Ephesians 4, 28 terms, the spiritual hitchhiker is still struggling with the transition from stealing, get, 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 to sharing, give, give, give. And listen, friends, being part of the church, being part of the local church, means learning to put in an honest day's work with all of life's resources. Because, as we'll see in the the text today, from a number of places, the body of Christ is is the God-designed place to learn to make the transition from consumer to contributor. It's the God-designed context for it. The body of Christ is where we learn to go from get, get, get to share. So in that vein... We're going to ask one main question today to help us get at this transition from consumer to contributor. Here's the question. Is it biblical to formally join a local church? This will help us. It may not seem like it at first, but we'll get there. Don't worry. And by the end of this, uh, we'll, we'll be saying one of our nine habits, which is commit to the church as a member. The question here is, did people in the New Testament actually join this fellowship in some sort of official, some sort of formal way, in a way that's in keeping with what goes on inside? Or was it a mutually assumed, sort of informal, uh, less formal kind of association? And then we'll talk about why this matters some. 
at the end. So there are 10 reasons, and I'm going to do this a little differently today than I normally do. I like to, if you're new with us, I like to just kind of take one big long passage and unpack it and bring in some other passages along the way. Um, today we're going to do this a little differently. We're going to just list 10 reasons. I'm going to go through scripture after scripture after scripture. Uh, and you, you'll have, those of you who are note takers, you'll have plenty of fodder for your personal study of notes because uh, we're just going to list these uh, reasons why there are 10 of them. And so we got a lot to get to. So let's Role number one. Number one is that the word member itself, and this may seem apparent by itself at first, self-apparent, the word member makes the most sense in the context of a formal membership in a local church. The word member itself makes the most sense in the context of formal membership in a local church. Let's start with the basics here. This may sound like a no-duh kind of thing to say, but the word itself, member, isn't something that churches just kind of made up. You know, to kind of keep tabs on people and to, you know, keep people under their thumbs. It's not just a made-up word. It's a Bible word. And it's used in two basic ways in the New Testament. The first is to just say this is a part of the human body, okay? A member of the human body, like an arm or like a leg. In Romans 12.4, for the note takers, in Romans 12.4, Paul uses it this way when he says, For as in one body we have many members, just like a human body, he's saying, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And if you keep reading, there's the second way the New Testament uses it in verse 5. Keep reading here. The second way. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So he uses those two ways in the same passage here. He says this sort of general way of talking about the human body and a member, a part of the human body in those kinds of terms is, is what he uses to, to use the analogy and metaphor to say this is what it's like to be a part of the body of Christ. So those are the two ways that it's used in the New Testament. And the first is that general way to be a member of the human body. The second is to be a member, a part, a piece, a participant of a whole of some type, an organization, whatever. In this case, a whole here, meaning the body of Christ. So just the word member itself makes the most sense in some sort of formal uh, context of church membership. This is, by the way, what we call a cumulative case. A cumulative case takes all of these together to help make the case. Not one of these by itself will be a slam dunk, but taken together you'll begin to see that the New Testament uses membership a certain kind of way. So the first is that the word member makes the most sense in the context of a formal relationship in a local church. The second is this, the word church itself. Number two, the word church. Number two, the word church, thank you, makes the most sense in the context of formal membership. This is really cool here. And we need to spend some time getting on the same page about this word church here. Uh, just like the word member, there are two uses of the word church in the New Testament. Two uses of it. I'll tell you about that in just a second. In the most basic sense, the word church is the word ecclesia. Uh, you, you probably, if you've been around church for a little while, have heard that term. Ecclesia means assembly, gathering, congregation in basic terms. And it's used two different ways in the New Testament. The word church is used in a general way and a specific way. When we talk of the church in general terms, we're talking about what maybe you've heard as the church universal, the universal church, or the church at large. Uh, maybe you've even heard the invisible church. 
And by that, in this general sense, we mean that the church is a group of all believers for all time. And here's the important part. It's known only to God himself. All believers for all time, known only to God himself. That's the church at large. That's what we mean when we talk about the invisible church, the universal church, the church at large. The second way is the way that we understand the word church to mean a specific local gathering, an actual visible assembly of people in a local setting. These are people with names and with faces. They take up space that we know of. They have names, they have faces, they take up space, but we don't know how all those people are. Only God knows those who will be believers who aren't yet alive. All people for all time known only to God. The specific local church is those who have names and faces. And that is, that is how the New Testament mostly uses the word. The overwhelming majority of instances of the word church in the New Testament refers to a specific local church, a place that has people who gather in it. And we're talking about the assembly of the church and its people, not the building, not the processes, not the programs, not the budget, not the leadership. Both of these are just about a gathering of people, the church universal, the church specific. And here's the bottom line. When the church is used, the word church in the New Testament, 80 plus, some believe 90 plus percent of instances of its use in the New Testament are this over here. In fact, the New Testament has lots of words to describe this kind of gathering over here. Words like disciples, brother, sister, saints. When it talks about the gathering of of community of people, it uses words like that. And guess what? Almost every single time those kinds of words like disciple, saint, brother, sister are used, they are used to refer to somebody over here in this local church, not over there. Here's the bottom line. This is gold. This is gold. The New Testament doesn't even have a word for a growing believer who is disconnected from the local body of believers. Doesn't even have a word for it. It doesn't even know what that would be. It's what the philosophers call a non sequitur. That even makes sense. There's no such thing, friends. I've been in ministry almost 20 years now. There's no such thing as a growing believer disconnected from the body of believers because there's something you're not going to be getting. We'll talk about that in a bunch of different ways here soon enough. I'm already spending too much time here. So here's the thing. When many Christians, and this is, this is real popular today to say this, they say, I like Jesus. I just don't like the church. When a lot of people say that, Here's what they're doing. They're misusing the concept of the universal church to justify their lack of connection to the local church. They're talking about the universal church in ways that the Bible doesn't. I'm a citizen of the church at large. That's what, that's what a lot of people are walking around saying. I'm a citizen of the universal church. How do you know that? God alone can name that. 
And sure, when you place faith and trust in Christ, when you are baptized, when you become a member of a local church, etc., however you want to talk about becoming a believer in Jesus, I prayed the prayer, I went down the aisle, I was baptized, I placed my faith and trust in Christ. Of course, when you do that, you're a part of the universal church. But the New Testament, each and every time that is the case, also assumes that this is going on. Every time. Every time. So, the word church itself, which 90 plus percent of the time means the local church, makes the most sense in the context of some form of membership where people have names and faces that we know. That's just two. We've got ten to get to. So, let's keep trudging on. Number three, the New Testament practice of counting, of just counting, makes the most sense in the context of a formal membership. There are a few places in Scripture where we know that they counted. In Acts 2.41, for example, it says, those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In verse 47, in the same chapter, it says the Lord added to their number. There was a number of them. So somehow they were counting, added to their number by day by day, those who were being saved. When it says their number, it implies that there's a group of people who are counted. Because there's a responsibility to disciple new believers. In Acts 4, 4, that 3,000 becomes 5,000 added. So the early church apparently counted. And this practice of actually just counting makes the most sense if there was some sort of formal membership where the church takes on the responsibility of helping believers grow. Otherwise, why bother counting? I mean, who cares? Why would you count? If you're not going to be responsible for people's growth, who cares? If they have names, and it's worth counting. <laughs> so counting is even a piece of it. Number four, the New Testament practice of keeping a list of widows makes the most sense in the context of a formal membership. In Ephesians, I'm sorry, in 1 Timothy 5.9, in 1 Timothy 5.9, Paul gives Timothy instructions about what widows were allowed to be placed in the list, what should be and which should not be. It says this, let a widow be enrolled. That word enrolled there is the list terminology. It means to put on a list. Some versions actually use the word list. Let a widow be enrolled, be listed, if she is not less than 60 years of age, has been the wife of one husband, etc., etc. There are a number of things there. In other words, they kept an actual list. They actually had a list. Widows were either enrolled on the list, or not enrolled, not on the list. So there's a New Testament precedent for an actual list. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you you don't see that kind of thing in the New Testament. Actually, you do. It's right there. It's a list of widows. And the word is list. Number five. The meaning of the word join in Acts 5 makes the most sense in the context of a formal membership makes the most sense in the context of a formal membership. In Acts 5, we read about a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira died on the spot when the church learned of uh, them lying. And so in Acts 5, we read of the reaction of the non-believers outside of the church to what had just happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And it says this, none of the rest, none of the non-believers uh, outside of the, the, the church there, 
um, the fake outward-only Christians, none of them dared join them. That word there for join is the word that they use in other places in the New Testament and in Greek uh, society at large to mean glue, cement to one another, to unite in a way that is cemented, joined for good. It's not the kind of relationship that's just informal. It's one where you choose to glue or to join yourself firmly to another. Again, that kind of language only makes sense in the context of some form of membership. Because you don't just accidentally or informally or haphazardly glue yourself to somebody. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 6 in a couple places to speak of being joined together in a sexual relationship and also to speak of being joined to the Lord by the Spirit. So clearly that kind of language doesn't fit well as a casual or a superficial relationship. That word join fits best in the context of something like a formal membership relationship. Number six, the meaning similarly, just another passage, the meaning of the words the whole church in 1 Corinthians 14:23 only makes sense in the context of a formal membership. Paul had planted this church at Corinth. And it was a young body of believers. They were struggling with, with how to do their public worship in an orderly fashion because it was a little bit chaotic. And so he writes this to them in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, he says, we'll put it on screen, if therefore the whole church comes together. Now leave that on screen for a bit if you would please. Here's the question. Who did Paul have in mind when he refers to the whole church here? Did he mean, as we talked about before, did he mean the church universal? Maybe the church in another city. Maybe he meant the church in Antioch. Maybe he meant even all the gatherings of the Christians in Corinth, for that matter. No, of course he didn't mean that. The only realistic answer about the people to whom he is referring here is that Paul intended to speak of those who were part of that particular local gathering that was having chaotic worship services, chaotic worship problems. He meant to say those who were members of that whole. That makes the most sense in the context of some sort of formal membership. Just imagine the Corinthian church leaders walking into the worship service one Sunday. How would they have known if the whole church was there? How would they have known? Apparently there was some way for them to know if the whole church was there. How else could they have known if they didn't know who belonged there and who didn't? Again, that kind of verbiage implies a verifiable membership. Especially in this context of those qualified to speak or prophesy in worship. Number seven. Church discipline only makes sense in the context of formal membership. In Matthew 18, which is the most famous of all the passages about church discipline, Jesus gives us instructions for how the local church should respond when someone within the local church continues to live like an unbeliever in a way that puts them in jeopardy in their relationship with God. This is what we call church discipline. 
And in 1 Corinthians 5, we have a specific application of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 18. So in, in 1 Corinthians 5, we have a specific case that is helpful for us today because Paul gives instructions on how to handle it. So look at 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13. He says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now here's the principle. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Then he says this, purge the evil person from among you. So there was this man in the church, sexual immorality was putting him in, his, in jeopardy of his relationship with God. And so Paul tells them there in verse 13 to purge the evil person from among you. When he says purge there, what does he mean? Is Paul simply telling them, don't let this man come to church with you because he's acting like an unbeliever instead of like a believer? I don't think so, because we know from other places in 1 Corinthians that the unbelievers were welcome to attend church meetings. Even after they'd purged him, they would have allowed and perhaps even welcomed him to sit under the preaching of the Word of God, just like any other person in town. So in what sense would they have purged, in the New American Standard it says remove, in another... uh, a version that says to expel. In what sense would they have purged this man? The best way of explaining this is that they would have removed them from that membership. Removed him from that membership. It makes the best sense in the context of formal membership. They would have removed him from the membership of the church and generally stopped associating with him outside of those church meetings. And think about this. Notice that in this passage here, Paul refers to those who are inside and those who are outside. Outside of what? As we've already said, anyone could attend their meetings. So this kind of insider and outsider language can only refer to a definite church membership of converted people, which means they're responsible to know who those people are. Think about it this way. What authority does a group have to remove someone who's already outside and not a member of the group? None. No authority. You can't fire someone who doesn't work for you. In the same way, you cannot formally discipline someone who is in an informal relationship with you. You have no authority to do so. Because they and you haven't agreed to the kind of relationship that merits being disciplined. So these people in Corinth here at the time had voluntarily committed themselves to a formal relationship. They knew they were official members of the church at Corinth and they knew who was outside and they knew that they could be disciplined. Biblical church discipline must be limited to a specific group of church members. That language of the New Testament makes the most sense in the context of some sort of formal membership. All right, we don't have time to go through the next three, but let me just mention them briefly. Number eight, 
the instructions uh, in lots of places. The instructions for pastoral, uh, the function, the instructions for pastoral oversight and spiritual leadership in the New Testament only make sense in the context of formal membership. Um, Let me just say it this way. Who do I oversee? Like, like who does a pastor or who do elders have spiritual oversight for? Like how can a pastor or elders provide spiritual oversight if they don't know exactly for those, those for whom they are responsible? There has to be some form of knowing who the converted believers are and who those aren't. If you're going to, to, have, uh, to do justice by pastoral oversight, as it's talked about in the New Testament. Number nine, baptism itself makes the most sense as a ceremony of formal membership. Baptism makes the most sense as a ceremony of formal membership. Uh, In the New Testament, coming to Christ was coming to the church. You didn't make some sort of private commitment of faith in Christ. When you see people coming to Jesus, they do so in this local church context. Not by themselves, off into a corner, praying a prayer. That's not what we see. And they didn't make a declaration of faith and commitment to the church at large. They do it over here. Local church setting. It was always and should always be a corporate experience by which we come to be a part of the larger body of Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. He draws parallels between the spirit and baptism and being a part of the church there. Last one, number 10. This is a cool and I'll just read you a little quote about this in just a second. The metaphor is used to describe local churches and there are others, but the main ones are flock, temple, body, and household. Uh, Flock, temple, body, and family language. The metaphors that are used to describe local churches make sense only in the context uh, of a formal membership let me read to you how one pastor describes this. This is, this is good. God has given us four pictures of the church, not one. This is not just to emphasize and prove the same point by repetition, but it is to say four different things about what it means to be a member of the church. Number one, to be a stone in his temple means to belong to a worshiping community. Number two, to be a part of the body means to belong to a living, functioning, serving, witnessing community. Number three, to be a sheep in the flock means belonging to a community dependent on its shepherd for food, protection, and direction. And lastly, to be a member of a family is to belong to a community that's bound by a common fatherhood. Put together, you have the main functions. Put these four together. You have the main functions of an individual Christian. And then he says this, evidently, We are meant to fulfill these, not on our own, but together in the church. Listen, friends, you cannot just consume spiritual growth. I think a lot of people are functioning as if that's how spiritual growth works. You will not experience spiritual growth by treating your involvement in the body of Christ as a consumer. You're not going to experience spiritual growth by sitting back and waiting for others to serve you. Or by waiting for others to give it to you. You don't just consume it. 
You participate in it. Week-to-week consumers of church life. Week-to-week consumers of church life who never learn to contribute to the work of ministry are functioning like spiritual hitchhikers. And friends, churches across America are filled with spiritual consumers. And not only do spiritual hitchhikers drain resources we need for mission, spiritual hitchhikers don't grow. You don't have to take responsibility for the travels or the car if you're just going to be a spiritual consumer. Which means you're not going to move forward as God intends for you. This is the God-designed context for our growth. Week-to-week consumers of church life who never learn to contribute to the work of ministry will not grow. And you know what happens when you don't grow? You die. You atrophy. This is how it works in nature, right? When a tree limb isn't getting the nourishment it needs, it falls off and dies. When when the branch isn't fed as the vine intends, it falls off and becomes detached. And this is how it works in us personally. If your practice is week-to-week consumption of church life, instead of being a contributor to church life, you will become, I've seen it time and again in 20 years of ministry, you will become a detached body part. Which, when you think about it, it's kind of gross. You'll become a detached body part. Because when you refuse to participate in the body of Christ, you stop growing, and this is what you become. It's a little bit gross, isn't it? We are like, if we've refused to participate in the body, we are like detached body parts. Don't worry, it's plastic. But friends, this is where some of us actually are. Sitting in formaldehyde, not growing. Trying to preserve a life of comfort and of ease and of safety that you think is helping, but that is actually a slow death. Here's the thing. The body of Christ is always right here waiting for you. Reaching out to you, ready and willing to reattach you. Ready and willing to be the context where you can grow to become who God made you to be. That's why we're here. That's what we do. That's what it means to help people find and follow Jesus. So friend, commit to the church, not as a disembodied part. Commit to the church as a member who gives in to the God-designed context where we go from consumer 
to contributor. Let's pray, friends.